Okay, today we're going to be talking about the United States uh, in the 1850s. Now, normally the 1850s would be considered to be a banner decade for Americans because the economy was booming. Gross national product was up 67%. That's a lot. Railroad mileage, which is the way the transportation system ran, tripled in mileage. Manufacturing doubled in output. Uh, Gross farm products are up 40%. In the South, it's a great decade economically. Cotton prices doubled during the 1850s. And, not surprisingly, the price of slaves doubled during this time. Now, there was, of course, the Panic of 1857, which you've read about, but that really only affected the North. It didn't affect the South in any significant way, and it was of relatively short uh, duration. It, It could be measured in months. It was less than a year. So, in the 1850s, the United States had an extremely healthy economy. But nonetheless, America was a sick nation, because it was a sick nation politically. The slavery question was now like a virus. It was spreading from the territories to the north and to the south and also to the capital of Washington, D.C. The 1850s were an incredibly angry and mean-spirited decade. There was paranoia on both sides. Paranoia in the north about the south and paranoia in the south about the north. There were physical confrontations on the floor of Congress. As bad as things have gotten in our Congress in the past few years, we have not had physical confrontations on the floor of Congress, uh, which is what we saw in the 1850s. There were guns being carried into Congress, guns on the floor of Congress. It was the saying that the only congressmen who were not carrying one gun were carrying two guns. There was northern paranoia. The slave power wants to rule the nation. The slave power wants to make slavery legal in northern as well as southern states. The slave power wants to destroy all democracy. There was southern paranoia. The north wants to end slavery in the south itself, not just keep it out of the territories. The north wants to incite slave rebellions, like the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831, to kill all the whites in the south. Now, some historians ask whether all this anger, all this paranoia, north and south, over slavery was necessary. Was it avoidable? And that's another way of asking the question of whether the Civil War itself was inevitable. Now, I can't answer that question for sure, but it seems to me that slavery is such a basic question. It had to be decided with finality at some point. And so... In the 1850s, we have the great irony of a nation with a booming economy strangling itself over slavery and moving closer and closer to the abyss of disunion. Now, one of the major events of the 1850s uh, with regard to slavery, in my opinion, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Now, what was the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Well, the Kansas-Nebraska Act officially repealed the Missouri Compromise Line, which uh, uh, you may recall, above which slavery was prohibited. In other words, above the southern border of Missouri, slavery would be prohibited. The Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed this. Now, there would be popular sovereignty 
in Kansas, Nebraska, on the slavery question. The settlers in the territories themselves would vote. This, of course, threw Kansas, Nebraska open to the possibility of slavery. Now, Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois was the key figure in the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And historians have wondered ever since Douglas helped pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act why he did this, why he supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which really put slavery on the front burner of American history. You know, there's this idea that uh, uh, it's probably best not to make trouble, not to create bad situations out of, not necessarily good situations, but at least situations that are under control. You know, my mother always told me, just don't make trouble for other people. Well, that's what Stephen Douglas did here. He made trouble. He sponsored the Kansas-Nebraska Act, got it passed, and it threw open the question of slavery in the territories. It made it a direct question on the front burner of American history. It repealed the Missouri Compromise, which had held up for 35 years. Not always perfectly, but held up. Well, why did he do this? Well, getting into the mind of Stephen Douglas, who in many ways uh, is as intriguing a political character as his great rival, Abraham Lincoln, is difficult. But here are some theories. First, Douglas, who was the most famous Democrat in the country in the 1850s and who badly wanted to be president, thought that he could get Southern votes, Southern Democratic votes, for his presidential run. And so he thought the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was giving the South something they did not already have, which was the possibility of slavery above the Missouri Compromise line, he thought that would result in votes. There's also the theory that Douglas, who was a great proponent of Manifest Destiny, wanted settlers in Kansas and Nebraska as part of Manifest Destiny, America pushing off to the Pacific Ocean. There's also the theory that, uh, 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 that uh, uh, Douglas, uh, who was a politician but also a businessman, had real estate holdings in the Kansas and Nebraska area uh, and wanted the area developed so that they would run a railroad through there and he could make money. That's the most mundane motivation, but sometimes uh, uh, these are the motivations of individuals, just money. Well, be that as it may, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, and there's popular sovereignty uh, in Kansas-Nebraska. For Stephen Douglas, he doesn't really care one way or another about slavery. He's morally indifferent to slavery. But he did believe in democracy there, and that's why he supported this idea of popular sovereignty. And in any event, the South is very happy with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But it has a negative effect on the North. The Kansas-Nebraska Act destroyed the Whig Party, which was already dying by the early 1850s. It galvanized the North and West, giving rise to a new party, the Republican Party. And by 1856, built out of the ruins of the Whig Party, the Republican Party was fielding national candidates and came reasonably close to capturing the presidency behind its candidate, John C. Fremont, a great Western explorer, an anti-slavery man. Uh, Fremont was the unsuccessful Republican candidate uh, in 1856, but made a respectable showing against the Democrat, James Buchanan, in that election. Not bad at all for a first-time party. Now, Buchanan, who was elected president in 1856, uh, was a northerner, 
but a Southern sympathizer. Uh, uh, he was from the state of Pennsylvania, uh, from Lancaster, actually not all that far from Gettysburg, ironically. Uh, Buchanan uh, was the kind of Northern Democrat who wanted to pacify the South. He, too, he didn't hold slaves himself, but, again, was indifferent morally uh, to slavery. He didn't think it was uh, necessarily such a bad thing. He wanted to keep the South in the Union and keep the, the South uh, satisfied and happy, since uh, the South at this point was making constant threats to secede from the Union every time it didn't get what it wanted. So Buchanan, if there had to be a Northerner in office, was the perfect Northerner uh, for the South. Now, getting back to the Republican Party, I spoke earlier about the elements of the Republican Party. The old Whigs, uh, uh, anti-slavery Democrats who switch over from the North, uh, free laborites, abolitionists. And now let me talk about the final element of the Republican Party, the know-nothings. Now, the know-nothings were a secret society, or at least started out, as a secret society of native-born Protestants, nativist Protestants. Uh, and they got their name, the know-nothings, because as a secret society, uh, every once in a while they'd be raided by the police. Uh, and when the police came in, they were instructed to say, I know nothing. In other words, I'm not going to give any of this away. Uh, 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 so they were known as the know-nothing party. Now, what were they? Well, they were anti-Catholic. They were anti-immigrant, which often was the same thing. Uh, there had been a huge wave of immigration to the United States between the late 1840s and the mid-1850s, uh, largely from Ireland and Germany. Uh, many Catholics, obviously. Ireland is almost completely Catholic, uh, and uh, uh, at least southern Germany is, is, is heavily Catholic as well. Uh, about three million immigrants during this time, and percentage-wise, that still counts as the greatest immigration wave in American history. Now, as I said, most of these Catholics, uh, most of these immigrants were Catholics, uh, and they were poor or working class uh, with lifestyles that didn't necessarily appeal to the Protestant nativists. Remember temperance? Well, uh, these working-class Catholics from Ireland uh, and Germany uh, are, are drinkers. Uh, uh, they also send their, their children to parochial schools, to Catholic schools, and not to the regular public schools, uh, which are also gaining hold in America during this time, the public school movement, which is you know, mostly spearheaded by Protestants. So immigrants threatened Protestants, uh, Catholic immigrants threatened Protestants during this time to the point that they formed this know-nothing party. Now, how did the immigrants specifically threaten these Protestants? Well, they threatened them politically because the Catholic immigrants, who were mostly Democrats, uh, 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 adhered to political machines in the cities. So they became part of the bosses, uh, the political democratic bosses in, uh, in, in, in large cities. So they threatened Protestant hegemony that way. They threatened Protestant hegemony through their competition for jobs. You know, you have all these immigrants, a new labor force, uh, competing for jobs. And as I intimated earlier, they threatened Protestants culturally. Uh, 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 a working class culture versus a middle class culture and we talked about that a couple of lectures ago uh, the idea of temperance the idea of alcohol again an issue that split them uh, and of course the issue that I mentioned earlier parochial schools 
Now, the height of the Know Nothing movement came in 1854, a huge Protestant backlash. Uh, by now, the Know Nothings are an open political party. They don't, they don't necessarily call themselves the Know Nothing Party. Uh, they call themselves the American Party sometimes. Uh, 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 you know, they have different names. It's not necessarily the, na the, the Know Nothing Party, but that's, that's what they've come to be called in history, the Know Nothings. Uh, uh, they, they swept elections in Pennsylvania and in Massachusetts in 1854, the Know Nothings did. Uh, in some states, they stopped uh, government aid to parochial schools or even made them illegal. Uh, uh, in some states, temperance laws were enacted. Uh, uh, and also, the naturalization period for uh, citizenship and voting, of course, was raised, in other words, to keep the Catholic immigrants from voting for as long as possible. Now, the know-nothings, as I mentioned, were former Whigs. And it was really the know-nothings uh, uh, in 1854, combined with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that really uh, uh, helped kill the Whig Party and finish it off uh, uh, in that year. Now, politically, know-nothings hated both the Pope because he was Catholic, they viewed him as being a despot. You know, uh, there's no democracy in the Catholic Church. You do what you're told. The Pope's a despot. They hated him, but they also hated the despotic slave power as well, because they too were despotic. They too were anti-democratic. And so you have the uh, the uh, anomaly uh, that the, the anomaly that that you have no nothings hating slavery but also hating Catholicism and hating immigrants at the same time. Now, it helped that many Catholics were pro-slavery, or at least indifferent to slavery, in terms of the, uh, uh, in terms of the uh, anger and enmity of the Protestants. You know, the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, 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 but, of course, there is a tremendous contradiction between uh, opposing slavery, meaning you're for freedom, and opposing immigrants or Catholics, meaning your anti-freedom. And Abraham Lincoln, uh, the most well-known of the Republicans, always pointed out this contradiction within the uh, Republican Party, within the know-nothings, who were making up part of the Republican Party uh, in the 1850s. Now, by 1856, uh, uh, the, uh, with the anti-slavery impulse having outweighed the anti-immigration impulse, know-nothings were folded into the Republican Party officially and pretty much went out of business. And there was a drop in the mid-1850s in immigration, so this sort of helped calm the, uh, the, the situation down. Uh, as did the realization by the know-nothings of the clear contradiction between being against slavery and being against uh, immigration. Uh, 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 and uh, a, co a contradiction also between the idea of being anti-immigrant and being pro-free labor. If you're a Republican, you're pro-free labor, and it's very difficult for you to say, well, I'm pro-free labor for us Protestants, but for those Catholic immigrants, no, no, I'm not pro-free labor for them. You can't do it. And so immigration, uh, uh, the immigration uh, uh, impulse, or the anti-immigration impulse, began to subside by the late 1850s as the know-nothings became full-fledged uh, Republicans. And it's also possible that the know-nothings realized by the mid-1850s that the real threat to liberty, the real threat to freedom in the United States came not from the Pope's power, but from the slave power of the Southern planter class. And in 1856 and 1857, three separate but interrelated events 
bore this idea out for the know-nothings and for all northern Republicans. And the three events were the Kansas crisis, the caning of Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, and the Dred Scott case. And we'll take them up in order. First, Kansas. Now, as I mentioned, the Kansas-Nebraska Act said that there would be popular sovereignty in the Kansas-Nebraska Territory. And pro- and anti-slavery settlers came into the territory. And, not surprisingly, they quickly began trying to kill each other. Kansas became a symbol of the fight over slavery in the territories during the 1850s, the most important symbol. Now, both pro- and anti-slavery settlers elected their own legislature, competing legislatures, uh, in, the, in the territory of Kansas. Now, it was clear that anti-slavery men were in a majority in Kansas. There were more of them than the pro-slavery uh, uh, settlers. Uh, but the president at the time, Franklin Pierce, uh, a Democrat who was president from 1853 to 1857 when he gave way to uh, Buchanan, Pierce recognized the pro-slavery legislature, even though there were fewer pro-slavery settlers in Kansas. They met in a town called Lecompton, L-E-C-O-M-P-T-O-N, Lecompton. So they were known as the Lecompton legislature. They're the pro-slavery, pro-South legislature, Lecompton legislature. Now, why did Pierce do this? Why did Pierce recognize the Lecompton legislature when he had to have known they were in a minority in the territory? Well, like his successor, James Buchanan, Franklin Pierce, who is from New Hampshire, is a pro-Southern Democrat. In fact, there was a name for these kinds of people. They're Northern men with Southern principles. That's what they called them, northern men with southern principles. Pierce, the Democrat from New Hampshire, was one, and Buchanan, the Democrat from uh, Pennsylvania, was one. Since the South was threatening to secede from the Union now, every time it didn't get its way, Pierce, as did Buchanan, kept on trying to pacify uh, the South, like fearful parents who give in to screaming children. Uh, you'll, be in that, uh, uh, you'll, you'll be in that situation someday, or at least many of you uh, will. The Democrats, at least from the Republican standpoint, are spoiling the South, are pacifying the South, giving them everything that they want so that they won't secede. Uh, uh, and that's how Pierce and Buchanan are described uh, and also criticized by Republicans. Now, Stephen Douglas, who was also a Democrat, but is not necessarily a northern man with southern principles. He's somewhere in the middle. He's sort of between Pierce and Buchanan and the Republicans. Stephen Douglas uh, attacked the Lecompton legislature, the pro-slavery legislature, because it went against majority rule, which is what Douglas is all about, popular sovereignty. You know, the minority is ruling here. So he attacked the Lecompton legislature, and this not surprisingly, angered the South against Douglas. This would come back to haunt him in 1860 when Douglas runs for president, as we will see. Now, meanwhile, in Kansas, there were massacres on both sides. A massacre of anti-slavery men uh, 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 by pro-slavery men at Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, Lawrence named after you-know-who uh, in 1856. And in retaliation for that, a massacre of pro-slavery men uh, at Pottawatomie, Kansas, uh, by John Brown, 
uh, who we will be hearing uh, more from uh, a little later in this lecture. Uh, John Brown, who was a man who did not mess around, uh, pulled uh, a number of pro-slavery settlers uh, out of uh, their beds at night uh, and hacked them to death uh, with broadswords in front of their families. Uh, as you can see, John Brown was, uh, well, not, not a man to be played with, as we will see uh, in a few minutes. Now, eventually, after enough fighting to give Kansas the nickname of Bleeding Kansas, majority rule did prevail, and Kansas entered the Union as a free state in 1861, just as the Civil War was beginning. But the lesson of Kansas to Republicans, to the new Republican Party, was this. Pro-slavery men would subvert majority rule to get their way. That's the lesson that angry Republicans took from bleeding Kansas. Then there was the caning of Charles Sumner. Now, at the height of the Kansas controversy, in May 1856, Massachusetts Republican Senator Charles Sumner gave an incendiary speech on the floor of Congress called The Crime Against Kansas. And in the speech, Sumner insulted Senator Andrew Butler of South Carolina, obviously a slavery supporter. Sumner used words like rape, harlot, mistress to describe the South's relationship, and Butler in particular, his relationship to slavery. Now, this might not be considered fighting words in our culture, but certainly in the southern culture of the 1850s, these words were fighting words. And it was too much for southern honor. Not so much the honor of Butler, but the honor of Butler's cousin, Representative Preston Brooks, who was in the House of Representatives. He came over to the floor of the Senate, found Sumner sitting at his desk on the floor of the Senate, took out his cane, and began beating Sumner with the cane. Now, Sumner, who is sitting, is trying to get up to defend himself, but then, as now, the desks on the Senate floor are bolted to the floor, and his knees got caught, and he was basically helpless. Uh, his skull was fractured, and he was almost killed. You know, Brooks finished caning him, uh, 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 and then just walked out of, uh, you know, of the chamber, uh, his dignity uh, saved. Now, Charles Sumner was the most sanctimonious and self-righteous anti-slavery man uh, in the nation. Uh, uh, so Southerners, who hated him most of all, uh, applauded. But the North was outraged, especially when Brooks, who then, lay, lay, then uh, dramatically resigned from the House of Representatives, was unanimously re-elected in a special election to take his own place and return to the House of Representatives. Now, the caning of Sumner taught the Republicans another lesson, that pro-slavery men would subvert representative democracy by beating senators on the floor of Congress to get their way. The slave power at work again. And then there was Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision of March 1857, the third and final blow to northern anti-slavery, uh, fueling their growing paranoia against the slave power. Now, Popular sovereignty in the territories for the North, for Northern anti-slavery men, was bad enough in and of itself. But Dred Scott effectively invalidated even popular sovereignty 
within the territories, declaring that a territory could not prohibit slavery, could not keep slaves out of the territories, since slaves were property, and the Constitution protected property. And for anti-slavery Republicans, the implication of the Dred Scott decision, as bad as the actual decision was, the implications were even worse. Would slavery one day be held to be legal in the states, too, as well as the territories in the states? If a slave was a piece of property, like a cow, like a plow, well, could you even keep slaves out of northern states because slaves were property? So these implications of the Dred Scott decision were even uh, more ominous. And what are the facts of Dred Scott? How do they get there? Well, Dred Scott, a slave, went with his master uh, from the South, slave territory, to free territory where slavery had been prohibited. Uh, he went to a number of, of territories where slavery was prohibited, but one of them was here in Wisconsin. When Wisconsin was a territory, it had prohibited slavery. Uh, uh, this is in the 1840s, early 1840s, and Scott had stayed there for a time with his master. But then he eventually uh, went back with his master to a slave state, Missouri. After the master died in the 1850s, Dred Scott sued in Missouri for his freedom. In March 1857, the Supreme Court, whose chief justice was the pro-South Roger Tawney, T-A-N-E-Y, ruled that a slave, Dred Scott, was not a federal citizen. And thus, since slaves were not federal citizens, they could not sue in federal court. Now, so blacks could be as citizens of the states, distinguish the states from the federal government. They could be state citizens if the states wanted to let them be citizens. But Tawney and the Dred Scott decision says that slaves, uh, slaves or blacks cannot be federal citizens. Now, this decision effectively, if it stopped right there, would have knocked Dred Scott out of court. You know, he would have been out of luck. But it wouldn't have decided anything about the slavery in the territories question. And as a lawyer, you're always taught that judges are supposed to stop when the specific facts in front of them are decided. They should go no farther and decide no more than they need to decide to just dispose of the case in front of them. And had the Supreme Court just stopped right here, you know, Dred Scott is not a federal citizen. He cannot sue in federal court. Game over. That's it. Well, there would have been very little controversy over uh, this case. But instead, Tawney and the Supreme Court, clearly overreaching, decide that they are going to themselves decide the slavery in the territories question, that the judges are going to decide uh, this question. And the rest of the, of the opinion tried to do uh, just that. It ruled that blacks were not intended to be covered by the Declaration uh, of independence uh, or the Constitution. It ruled that slaves were constitutionally protected property and could not be kept out of the territories. Note, territories, not states. They didn't go so far as to talk about the states uh, because Congress, the federal government, is, uh, the, is the entity that controls the territories until the states do until statehood, and then the states themselves control. So we're just talking about slavery in the territories. But Dred Scott rules that slavery cannot be kept out of the territories, meaning 
Stephen Douglas's idea of popular sovereignty uh, in the territories was now effectively uh, invalidated. Dred Scott then was a great southern victory. Slavery was now effectively legal in the territories. While states could still outlaw slavery when they became states, slavery in the territories gave the pro-slavery settlers a tremendous advantage when the, when, when, the state, when the territory became a state because the slaves were already there. You know, If they could be kept out, there'd be no slaves at the statehood at the time of statehood. But if the slaves were already in the territories and then they become a state or the Kansas becomes a state, well, you have all these, uh, you know, you have all these uh, pro-slavery ter- uh, settlers in there with their slaves. So how do you think the vote's going to go? It's probably going to go in favor of, sl- of slavery in these states. Now, the South, knowing that slaves would not be protected in places like Kansas, that there'd be all this violence, now started to demand a federal slave code to legally protect slavery in the territories. You know, they knew that they would need this. But Northerners, even Democrats, like Stephen Douglas, said, no way, we are not going to give you a federal slave code. Now, Dred Scott was a huge blow to the anti-slavery Republicans, who, as I mentioned, uh, now feared a new Dred Scott ruling, uh, this time saying that Uh, uh, slavery could not be kept out of already existing northern states that had prohibited slavery uh, since the Constitution protects property and slaves are property. Uh, 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 So slavery, possibly, the Republicans feared, could now spread from the territories, not just to southern states, but to northern states as well. And again, the lesson for the Republicans. The slave power would subvert the will of the people working through the essentially undemocratic Supreme Court, the only branch that is not elected, working through the Supreme Court to impose slavery everywhere in the United States. Now, all of this pent-up anger and emotion came to a head during the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, during the Senate race in Illinois uh, in 1858. And the two protagonists, uh, incumbent Senator Stephen Douglas and, of course, Abraham Lincoln, were symbols of two approaches to the slavery question in the 1850s. Douglas representing the Democratic approach and Lincoln, of course, the uh, Republican approach. Now, Stephen Douglas, who, as I mentioned, was the incumbent, uh, was, in 1858, much more well-known than Abraham Lincoln. He was known as the Little Giant. He was five foot four. He was barrel-chested. Uh, he was a very thickly built man with a deep voice. He was, as I mentioned, identified with the idea of popular sovereignty. And he believed, basically, that America should be a democracy but a white man's democracy. His view was that uh, 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 slavery uh, was uh, morally a a question that could be decided by localities the same way you would decide, do you want to put in a new sewer line? Do you want to uh, uh, spend more money on the schools? It's a local issue that you can vote up and down uh, depending on, on what you want. He was morally indifferent to it. But he did feel that America was a democracy, but a white man's democracy, not a black man's democracy. He was also once a suitor of Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln bested him and uh, beat him out for Mary Todd Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln, the challenger, uh, was from a famously poor background, uh, and I'm sure you know about that, uh, the ultimate self-made man in the developing United States of the 19th century. 
uh, a lawyer, uh, a politician, although up until 1858, not a particularly successful one. Uh, he had been a Whig congressman for one term between 1846 and 1848. He's a Whig before he is a Republican. Uh, Lincoln lived in the state capital of Springfield, so uh, that helped him become more well-connected politically, even though he wasn't uh, in office in the 1850s. Now, unlike Douglas, Lincoln saw slavery as a moral wrong, uh, not in the abolitionist sense, he's not William Lloyd Garrison here, but in the broader, what I would call free labor sense, uh, as I discussed in my earlier lecture, uh, uh, as sort of a, uh, an impediment to the growth of the country, uh, uh, and uh, also as a threat to American democracy, which Lincoln believed very deeply in. Now, in 1854, uh, Lincoln, who had basically retired from politics to become a successful railroad and corporate lawyer, uh, came back into politics as a Republican because he was so shocked and angered by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Kansas-Nebraska changed the dynamics of the slavery question for Lincoln. Before Kansas-Nebraska, uh, Lincoln thought of slavery as, as an institution that was on its way to ultimate extinction. And that's how we put it, on its way to ultimate extinction. But after Kansas-Nebraska, Lincoln thought that slavery was poised to expand throughout the United States and expand indefinitely. And so he came back into politics as a Republican in order to stop that. Now, the debates of 1858 between Lincoln and Douglas uh, became famous and, and became nationally uh, well-known uh, through the reprints of the transcripts of the debates, uh, uh, some of which uh, you read for today. They were all over Illinois, northern and southern Illinois, and they were attended like a sporting event. And you can tell by the little asides in the transcript that you read with people cheering and people calling out from the crowd. They're almost like sporting events. Now... Although Lincoln eventually narrowly lost that election, uh, at this time, uh, senators were decided by the state legislature. It wasn't, a, uh, wasn't a, a straight popular vote. Lincoln got more popular votes in this election than Douglas did, but because of the redistricting of the legislature, uh, he lost in the state legislature. So he narrowly missed uh, being senator. But he did gain uh, a great amount of positive publicity for uh, his strong exposition of Republican uh, anti-slavery principles, both for the principles and, of course, for Lincoln himself. In 1860, there would be a rematch between Lincoln and Douglas, this time for the presidency, and, of course, this time there would be a different outcome. Now, the positions of Lincoln and Douglas uh, during the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, uh, on, on, on slavery, uh, on the role of, uh, of, 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 of African Americans in American life, uh, uh, the role of, uh, of, of African Americans generally, uh, I think if you, if you put these positions side by side, you could see an illustration of the differences between the Democratic and Republican parties uh, during this time. There are very deep policy differences. So I have a series of questions here uh, that Lincoln and Douglas would answer mostly in very, very opposite ways. Let me just read the questions and read their answers. First, can America exist half slave and half free permanently? Lincoln's answer to the question was no. 
It could not exist half slave, half free. It had to become one or the other. Famously, uh, in 1858, in his House Divided speech, uh, when he's nominated for the Republican nomination uh, for, the, uh, for the Senate, uh, his famous House Divided speech in Springfield, uh, he says that America cannot exist permanently half slave or half free. Douglas's answer to that question was yes. You know, we've done it for the you know for almost a hundred years now, eighty years since independence. We can continue to exist half slave, half free. In other words, let's not make a big deal of it. Let's not break the nation up over it. Then the question of Dred Scott. Is Dred Scott a good decision? Lincoln says no. Douglas says yes, but there is somewhat of a contradiction here because Douglas is made nervous by the fact that popular sovereignty, which he supports, uh, is knocked out in Kansas and Nebraska and in the territories by the Dred Scott decision. And he wonders what is coming next from the South. What's coming next from the South is uh, a, a demand for a federal slave code, which Douglas feels just, you know, just goes too far. Uh, 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 so Douglas says yes, but may not really mean it. Should there be popular sovereignty in the territories? Well, Lincoln says no. This is a question that, uh, that, that should not be voted on. It's a moral question. It's a policy question. It should be uh, uh, decided basically by the federal government, and the federal government should decide to keep slavery out. Douglas says yes, although, again, there is a tremendous contradiction between Dred Scott, which says no popular sovereignty, and the idea of Douglas that there should be popular sovereignty, and he never really resolves that contradiction. Should there be local control of the slavery question? Lincoln, no. Douglas, yes. Is slavery morally wrong? Lincoln, yes. Douglas, no. Should there be black citizenship, black voting, meaning black political equality? Douglas says absolutely not. This is a white man's country. Lincoln is a little, is, is hedging on this. Uh, 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 he says before the audiences in the southern part of the state, no, because the southern part of the state of Illinois is more conservative. Uh, 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 in, the, in the north, he's a little more vague. Uh, uh, I think it's this aspect of Lincoln's personality that, that some people criticize, where he's running for office. Uh, he knows he has an unpopular message. I think in his heart he knows that there has to be political equality for African Americans. He's just not really saying this directly during the Lincoln-Douglas debates because he wants to be elected. Uh, Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, once famously said of Lincoln, his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. He was very quietly in his own way, very ambitious. So he hedges on this question. Should there be black social equality? In other words, black-white intermarriage, let's say. Uh, uh, there, the candidates agree. Lincoln says no, and Douglas says no. Should there be black economic equality? Well, there Lincoln says yes, because he believes in free labor. He says famously during the debates that just because I would not want a black woman as a slave, that does not mean I would want her as my wife. In other words, no social equality, but blacks should not be slaves, and they should be allowed to keep what they can earn in the, you know, in the race of American life. And these positions, these yes-no answers, pretty much illustrate uh, the differences between Democrats and Republicans generally on these issues, the issues of slavery, the issues of black equality, the issues of race generally uh, in the United States. 
Now, Democrats like Stephen Douglas tried to paint Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans as what Douglas called a black Republican. Black Republicans who wanted complete political, social, and economic uh, equality uh, uh, for blacks. Republicans like Lincoln denied wanting black equality and instead tried to point up slavery's damage to whites the free labor argument that I talked about you know, a couple of lectures ago, uh, 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 ex- the dangers of the expanding slave power, which had nothing necessarily to do with slavery as a moral issue. And also, Lincoln argued that slavery itself was a threat to the democratic experiment, uh, that slavery would cause the democratic experiment to fail, uh, you know, because the, of the obvious hypocrisy of a nation ostensibly devoted to the idea that all men are created equal, uh, uh, still enslaving human beings. Now, by the late 1850s, not only were the uh, Northerners and Southerners divided over the slavery question, but Northern Democrats and Republicans, Northerners themselves, were divided over what to do about slavery and what to do about the South, with Northern Democrats, like Buchanan and Pierce, favoring a more conciliatory approach. But even this had limits. Uh, 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 for Northern Democrats. Northern Democrats, uh, who were led by Stephen Douglas, the Douglas faction of the Northern Democrats, uh, opposed the Lecompton Constitution, the Lecompton legislature, as I mentioned before in Kansas, opposed a federal slave code, as I mentioned, and also Douglas specifically proposed what was known as the Freeport Doctrine, uh, uh, Named, uh, not after you, Mackenzie, but uh, uh, named after your hometown of, of Freeport because uh, it was delineated uh, at the Freeport debate. I didn't give you that. I gave you the Ottawa debate. But I, uh, the, at the Freeport debate, uh, Douglas uh, uh, articulated what became known as the Freeport Doctrine. Now, what was the Freeport Doctrine? Well, Lincoln, being the great debater uh, that he was, uh, 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 posed the question to Douglas, well, can, a ter- can the people of a territory legally keep slavery out of the territory? This is after Dred Scott. So the answer to that question from Douglas should be, no, they can't because of the Dred Scott decision. But... Douglas, who is trying to work both sides of the street here, says, yes, yes, they can. Uh, because, in a practical sense, Dred Scott decision or no Dred Scott decision, if on a local level, in the territories, the police are not going to protect the slave owners, then slavery will be kept out. You know, the slaveholder will say, uh, you know, he'll, you know, he, he can't call the police uh, if, you know, if his slave is being, you know, uh, the, you know, people are trying to interfere with the slave. But, you know, he can go over to a policeman and say, well, protect my slave. Uh, uh, the Dred Scott decision of the Supreme Court makes it legal. And the, uh, the policeman on the local level can say, well, hey, that's the Supreme Court in Washington. Here in Kansas, I'm not going to help you. That's the Freeport Doctrine. And so Douglas says, okay, there is the Dred Scott decision. But realistically, the people of a, sl- of a territory can keep slavery out just by refusing to protect it on a local level. And this, of course, really enrages the Southerners because they think they've won with Dred Scott, and now Douglas is basically trying to take this victory away from them. Uh, 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 and uh, this, again, will come back to haunt Douglas uh, you know, farther, farther down the line. Now, Southern Democrats did their share to enrage Northern Democrats as well. 
They insisted on low tariffs, which uh, hurt northern manufacturers. This angered the north. They effectively vetoed the Homestead Act, did Southern Democrats, uh, uh, which would have given settlers free western land uh, because they knew it would mostly go to northern farmers who were anti-slavery. The South also vetoed federal aid to the Transcontinental Railroad, which was being planned at this time. Again, figuring that the railroad, uh, Transcontinental Railroad, is just going to help northern manufacturers uh, and northern merchants and just link the north to the west, that it's not going to help the south. The south even vetoed a bill to extend uh, a, a federal aid to land-grant colleges in the west, which again they felt would just help northern settlers. Now, all this would set the stage for the incredibly divisive Democratic Convention of 1860. Actually, conventions, plural, as we'll see uh, when we talk about on, uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, in which uh, the, the Democratic Party basically split into two factions, a northern faction and a southern faction. So not only was there sectional friction, north and south, there was even friction between the Democrats, uh, 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 the Democratic Party, north and south. And the paranoia continues. Northerners became paranoid more and more about the anti-democratic threat of the slave power, the possibility of slavery everywhere in America. The south had paranoia of its own. The North was going to try to destroy slavery in the South itself and use slave violence to do it. Now, this was a real sore point with Southerners, because in many parts of the South, slaves outnumbered whites, sometimes by a two-to-one majority. So whites felt physically vulnerable, and they were traumatized still, even all these many years later, by the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831. And this is why the October 1859 John Brown Raid at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, was such a traumatic and devastating blow to the southern psyche and fed its growing paranoia. Now, John Brown, who we heard from uh, earlier in this lecture, was a, uh, a religious fanatic, uh, an abolitionist, who believed that slavery was morally wrong and biblically wrong, and it must, must be purged violently, purged with blood. He had, as I described, killed pro-slavery settlers already in Kansas at Pottawatomie by slashing them to death with broadswords. So this is a violent man. Now, in October 1859, with financial support uh, from a group of New England abolitionists, Brown planned to start a slave uprising. He planned to seize the federal arsenal uh, uh, with its guns at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia, uh, arm the slaves in the region and move south as the head of an abolitionist army. Now, there was no real chance of this succeeding, uh, and it didn't. Uh, Brown took the arsenal at Harper's Ferry with a group of 22 men, including five blacks. Three of his sons were with him. Uh, and engaged in a shootout with the Virginia State Militia, which was, uh, 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 which was commanded, ironically, by a colonel by the name of Robert E. Lee. Uh, Brown was captured, but not before 15 were killed, 10 of his own men. No slaves were liberated, and Brown was quickly tried and hanged in December of that year. But it was the northern reaction to John Brown that made the South so angry and so paranoid. Most northerners regarded Brown as a hero, a man of great moral courage, and not a terrorist, which is what the South viewed him as. 
at his December 1859 execution, uh, which was incidentally not only attended by Robert E. Lee, but attended by John Wilkes Booth as well. Strange how history seems to come full circle. Uh, on the day of his execution in December 1859, northern church bells, bells rang, uh, there were sermons in church, uh, 21 gun salutes, editorials. The North was in mourning. John Brown, an abject failure in life, had become a success in death. And this, more than anything else, may have been the final symbolic straw for both the North and the South. Brown's moral dignity made Northerners confront slavery as a moral wrong. But it caused Southerners to believe that Northerners would stand by while their property, their homes, their culture, their very way of life were taken from them. And as John Brown's body swung from the gallows in December 1859, the nation faced a presidential election the next year that would be the most important in its history one that would decide where America would go and ultimately the kind of nation the United States would be. We'll talk about that election and its consequences next time.